Welcome to the Rich Roll Podcast, episode 83, with Ultraman triathlete Christian Isaacson. The Rich Roll Podcast. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the show, to the Double RP. I'm your host, I'm Rich Roll, where each week I bring to you the best, most forward-thinking minds when it comes to rethinking and reimagining our current wellness, happiness, and human performance paradigms. So what does that mean? That means thought and action leaders in health, fitness, diet, nutrition, creativity, art, entrepreneurship, and above all, life transformation. My goal is to help broaden your horizons, help you blow through the glass ceiling on your innate human potential, not just physically, not just mentally, not just emotionally, not just professionally, but also creativity, creatively, 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 and spiritually. Why? Because true health means attention to and balance across all aspects of the human experience. And more often than not, in my own personal experience at least, it's the overlooked thing. It's that thing you don't want to really work on. That's the thing that is holding you back. To wit, the goal, in a nutshell, is to motivate and inspire you to take your life to the next level to help you discover, unlock, and unleash your best, most authentic self. So before we get into today's guest, I have a little bit of an announcement. It's a special announcement, so I'm going to take a little bit of a detour here. Uh, if you're a longtime listener, then you know that I'm guilty of making the occasional uh all right, so maybe more than occasional uh, announcement regarding our plant-based nutrition course that we uh, produced in partnership with Mind Body Green. It's called the Ultimate Guide to Plant-Based Nutrition. Three and a half hours of streaming video content. Blah blah blah. You've heard me. Uh, you've heard me talk about this a lot because I'm really proud of it, and we offered it. We put it up about a year ago, uh, and it's been really a smash hit. People have really enjoyed it. We're proud of it. Uh, and I think, uh, it's been a benefit to a lot of people. And so as a result of the success of this course, the door has been open over at mind body green for me to do another course with them. And I think it would have been a no brainer for me to kind of do another plant-based nutrition sort of course, maybe around athletes or something like that. But I feel like there's so much information out there already on that. And I really wanted to reach beyond that and, and stretch myself uh, and go deeper, you know, and it compelled me to think about what it is that I have to offer that is unique to me, that's unique to my experience, that could be of benefit to other people. And I started thinking about a couple of blog posts that I, that I wrote recently. Uh, the first one was called The Art of Living with Purpose. And the second one was called Why You Should Stop Hacking Your Life and Invest in the Journey. And both of these posts uh, that I wrote, I don't know, a couple, maybe two months ago, um, really hit a core. They're, they're definitely the most popular blog posts I've ever posted on my website. And then I posted them on medium.com and they kind of blew up and went crazy haywire uh, viral. This got like tons of, of reads and, and a lot of amazing feedback on that. It really went bananas, which was really cool, but it really uh, provoked me to think more about the subject matters raised in those posts, which, which have to do with how we're living our life, what's important to us, how do we access something more personally meaningful and express that more deeply uh, in, our, in our daily experience. And, uh, and it made me kind of understand in a, in a deeper way that I have accumulated an arsenal of, 
of a lot of powerful ideas and opinions and tools on, on this subject matter of how to embrace a, a new and more fulfilling, personally meaningful approach to life. You know, how to uncover and embrace latent passion, how to properly set and achieve a goal. Uh, in essence, how to transform your life and become your best, most authentic self. In other words, the exact, you know, predominant theme of this uh, of this podcast, of every episode of this podcast. So the long story short is uh, I did that. I put together a new online course. It's entitled The Art of Living with Purpose, How to Set and Achieve Goals, Transform Your Life and Become Your Best, Most Authentic Self. And uh, this course just went live on Mind, Body, Green today, the date that I'm sitting here uh, in London, Ontario, recording this introduction. Uh, it's May 1st the day of the recording. Uh, and I'm really excited. Uh, it came out really great and, uh, I'm just pumped to tell you guys about it. So it's going to involve, or it does involve over two hours of streaming video, uh, content that's divided into six modules and 14 sessions, an array of downloadable tools and resources addressing everything from the fundamentals of transformation, like how to properly set a goal, how to erect a, a roadmap that works, how to create structures and momentum and community and accountability around your goals and why people traditionally fail or, or fall short, and the essential foundational principles and practices uh, behind every successful, sustained life transformation, what's worked for me and what, what hasn't, et cetera. So I'm really pumped about it. I worked really hard on it, and I do think it has uh, a lot of value. It's a toolbox that contains everything, basically, that you need to, to make the changes in your life necessary to become the person you always wanted to be and deserve to be. So I could go on all day about this subject matter. I won't. Let's leave it at this. Just go to mindbodygreen.com. It's on the homepage. You can check it out or check the show notes for this episode at richworld.com. And there'll be a hyperlink up for you to learn more about it. Okay, today's guest. Today's guest is a guy that I personally can relate to on many, many levels. Today's guest is unique to this show in that he's the only guy I've had the pleasure of having on the show who, like me, has competed at both the Ultraman World Championships and has done Epic Five. How about that? It's the first time I've had a guy on the show who's done Epic Five, which is going to be pretty cool. Uh, so today's guest is also a husband. He's a father. He's a guy driven by a strong sense of faith, purpose, and giving back the blessings bestowed upon him in service to others. Today's guest is... Christian Isaacson. I was first introduced to Christian several years ago. Uh, it was on the eve of him attempting uh, Epic Five in 2011, which was a year after I did it. Jason Lester put it on again and invited a few select people to, to make the attempt um, you know, for the second year in a row. And since then, Christian and I have been fast email pen pals and phone buddies, and we correspond pretty consistently and have done so over the years about everything from family to nutrition to training to racing and, and many conversations that I've had with him about which races I thought Christian should, Christian should be doing and why. And after his uh, excellent Epic Five performance in 2011, or he was able to complete that distance, complete that distance, complete the all five Ironmans within the five day period, which was amazing. I really encouraged him uh, to go after Ultraman. He hadn't done Ultraman at that point, and I just knew that it was the the distance that would really allow his talent to shine. And it did this past year. He had a stellar debut at the Ultraman World Championships 2013 this past Thanksgiving, and today finally he's coming on the show to tell us all about it. 
the odd thing, the ironic thing is that I hadn't actually ever met Christian in person until he came down to LA from where he lives in Portland recently and, and stayed at my house with my family uh, for a night. It was a couple of weeks ago. So today we sit down, we go through it all. We go through the pain, the passion, the faith that fuels and drive him, drives him, the unique pull and allure of ultra distance racing and how he balances his lifestyle with his marriage and his kids and his profession and his fidelity to his church and his faith, which is very important to him. And also we talk a lot about how service plays into this equation. Uh, Christian has work, worked with various church organizations and he's more recently become involved with uh, something called the Yamina Project, which is a nonprofit uh, with whom he traveled to Kenya a couple months ago <clears throat> to help provide needed medical care to those in desperate need. In fact, he made a little uh, short documentary about it that I'll post in the, uh, on the blog post for this episode. It's pretty cool. It's embedded there. So if you want to learn more, go to richworld.com. Anyway, so it's rare that I get an opportunity to sit down with a guy with whom I share so much in common. It's like, Venn diagrams overlapping all over the place. And as a result, for better or for worse, this means that our conversation uh, goes on pretty long, really long. In fact, it's almost three hours long. So that gave me a choice. I could either put up the entire three hours at once, or I could spend a bunch of time or have Tyler spend a bunch of time editing down the conversation to its essentials to get it, you know, more around an hour and a half or so, or uh, the third option, which is the option I chose which is to split the interview up into two parts. So this week, this is part one. It's going up. Uh, this is what you're listening to now. It's probably Monday if you're listening to this right away. The second part is going to go up Thursday. Uh, so that way you'll get both parts in the same week. And that creates a RRP twofer for the week. Instead of uh, one episode this week, you're going to get two. And that'll keep us on track to bring uh, a new interview with somebody uh, new the following week. Anyway, Christian is a really solid guy. He's one of those guys who walks his talk, one of those guys who shows up when he says he's going to show up, a guy with a really strong moral compass and sense of direction, you know, with a handshake stronger than any contract. And one of those guys whose word is solid gold, you know, he's old school. It's almost as if he comes from an older generation, like the generation of my grandfather, when things like that seem to mean more than they do now. But the point is, it's rare to find guys with such a strong moral character. And Christian is one of those guys. It's an honor to know him. It's an honor to be his friend. And it's an honor to share this conversation with you today. We're brought to you today by a very exciting brand new sponsor, Go Brewing. I am sober. I don't drink. And I devoted so many episodes of this podcast to the unreal benefits of an alcohol-free lifestyle. Why? Because even if you don't have issues with booze and suds, no amount of alcohol is good for you. At a minimum, it wreaks havoc on your sleep and produces a hangover that destroys your energy, your mood, and your focus. At worst, it turns your whole life upside down. But no longer does that mean you have to break up with your favorite brew because my pals at Go Brewing are making all your favorite brews minus the alcohol, fewer calories, and more productive tomorrows. It's not every day that I get the privilege to witness the inception of a company collaborating with our podcast, but that's exactly what happened with Go Brewing. I'm going to tell you this story. A few years back, 
I spoke at this event in Illinois, fittingly named Go. And it turns out that that very day catalyzed Joe, the founder, to start his own NA beer company, Go Brewing. I had no idea about any of this until I bumped into Joe at Jesse Itzler's Running Man event the other month in Georgia. And he shared this story with me. I savored his fare in all its varieties and deeply moved by the mission and what he shared with me and just impressed with the insane taste and quality of his alcohol-free concoctions, I wanted to help share the discovery. Made with natural ingredients faithful to traditional beer styles, Go Brewing has an impressive lineup of delicious, small-batch, craft, alcohol-free brews, all without added sugar or artificial processing. My favorite is their double IPA, not just another story, but Basically, you just really can't go wrong because everything they make is brewed to perfection, worthy of trying yourself, which you can now do at gobrewing.com. That's gobrewing.com and use the code RICHROLL for 15% off your first purchase. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care, especially because unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem. A problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support, and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple. Search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you. I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life and recovery is wonderful, and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. You have the dubious honor of being the first person to get on an airplane to come here and do this, so I'm quite honored. Well... I think I'm the one that's honored, Rich, so thanks. No, it's, uh, it's great to have you. And it's funny, um, you know, we were talking about this earlier. Actually, we've talked about this a number of times, but uh, this is the first time that we've actually met in person. But yeah. I feel like, I mean, I've talked to you so many times on the phone. I've followed you for so long that, it, you know, I, I feel like I've known you forever. Yeah, I think, uh, um, same way, same here. I mean, I feel, I feel, you know, putting stuff on Instagram today saying going to see my friend Rich, it's... Um, 
you've always been so supportive of me. And before my races, some of the, you know, biggest races of my life, you've always been the one that I've called and, um, the one that has just lended a, a hand of support and direction. So thanks, man. You know how happy I am to be here. No, it's great. I was trying to remember what the first point of contact was though. Was it, was it, uh, must've been around the time you did Epic five. Yeah, it was Epic five. Um, yep. And I, 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 I knew about you because you guys had done it the year before. Uh Um, and I, uh, so I started to kind of keep tabs on you and, um, one thing led to another leading up to Epic five and you and I first, um, started to chat via, you know, email right and text and stuff and then we started talking and then we started writing long letters at night to each <laughs> <Yeah>. other <laughs> i know my pen pal yeah yeah my bromance yeah so where does it all begin for you i mean i i, I pick up your story it's funny because i picked you up at the airport and i was already learning things about your life that i that i didn't know i mean my my sort of reference point for where your life begins is is kind of you know epic five and some of the iron mans that came after that and then the lead up to you know your your incredible performance at ultraman this year but i want to take it a step back okay um well dude if it's uh from the very beginning i you and i have close ties because we both grew up in you know initially we have ties in michigan um we go way back way back uh we we crossed on the (laughs) playground back in detroit exactly i grew up in detroit um uh, in, uh, well, in the city at first, and then it moved to, to the suburbs, you know, Plymouth Canton outside of Ann Arbor. Mm-hmm. Um, I was, uh, born, um, to my, my dad who recently actually three, three, about three and a half weeks ago passed away. Um, I was, uh, my, my father and my mom, um, my mom's from Austria. Um, my dad mm-hmm. met my mom in, in, you know, in Europe after Vietnam, my dad. Oh, wow. Yeah. My He's dad. Vietnam vet. Yep. Yep. Uh-huh. Decorated. Um, and, and, and basically lived in Vietnam for the, for the duration of his life until he died three weeks ago. Oh, um, wow. I yeah. didn't know that part. Yeah. He, uh, I've got, um, my, my, you know, talking to you a little bit about, um, my, my history, um, my dad was <laughs> made such a big part of my life and it, I don't think he intended to do so. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was probably the closest thing to a demon that I think I've ever seen. Um, as harsh of a word it is to use for my dad, he was an evil, evil man. So I grew up in a pretty broken home, um, with my mom caught in the crossfire, um, in Michigan. And then, uh, as soon as high school, um, and that I was gone. I took off. I oh, went, you, you I, left home after high school? I was 17 years old. Yep. I was 17 years old. I wanted out of the house. Um, I mean, how did your mom, do you have brothers and sisters? Yeah, I've got an, a younger brother and an older brother. Um, uh-huh. So you were in the middle and yep. grew up with, I mean, your dad didn't, he was, he was around, he, he was physically present when you were growing up in high school. Yeah, he was physically present, but he was, he was, uh, he was a firefighter, Detroit firefighter. Um, Mm -hmm. but he was a severe drug abuser and alcoholic. Um, and he was, uh, when he was around, it wasn't good. Um, you know, I was physically abused pretty consistently, Mm -hmm. um, emotionally abused constantly. Um, so, uh, I chuckled because I was like, oh, I'm going to tell you things I haven't told people, um, ever before, but, um, I've alluded. It's just us, Christian. Yep, it's just no you and me. Listening. Yeah. Uh, but my dad was, uh, 
he just did some twisted stuff. Um, uh, I, I mean, is that a result of stuff he saw in Vietnam or was that, was his father that way or where, where's the pattern or is it just, is it just being a drug addict? Yeah. I come from a long line of people that have a, a, a pretty, um, ingenious way of dodging the truth. Um, and you know, I, I always struggled with the, the disease being the label of an alcoholic and a drug abuser when it was the only disease that I could like early on in my, in my childhood, when I was even eight or nine years old, I always used to question like, how can a disease be brought on by an act of will? Mm-hmm. It was, it just confused me. Um, I was that kid that got picked up by my dad at school when he was hammered. You know, I had to drive mm-hmm. home with him while he was drunk in the car. And, um, and he, uh, he was horribly abusive to my mother, um, unfaithful to my mom. Just, he's just a bad guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, my mom was just kind of, you know, bless her soul, just caught in the middle. Right. So um, she's just trying to do the best that she yeah, can. Yeah, keep things together. Um, I mean, did your did your siblings have the same experience with your dad? Yeah, there were times. I, you know, I, if you talk to my brothers, they would be the first to admit that I, I probably received the brunt of the physical abuse, um, and and the emotional abuse was kind of twisted as well. But we all suffered in our own way mm-hmm. as a result of my dad's um, unwillingness to step up to the plate and be a father. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was confusing, man. I mean, it right. was just confusing. And then when, when, when you and your siblings were grown, he went back to Vietnam? Or? Uh, well, I think mentally he never just, left. I see. So yeah. you're, you're basically saying mentally he, yeah. was, never, he, was, yeah. he was always there. Mentally, he, he never left. And then um, it, was, uh, it, it just spiraled out of control. And I, I mentioned uh, earlier to you in a, in a conversation we were talking about, um, it just seems like every once in a while, um, the cockroaches that I find in the past of, of some of the footprints that my dad's left in my life are still kind of buzzing around, not in a bad way. Um, but it, when I found out that he died three weeks ago before I left for Kenya, it was, I was like, he died on the table getting a liver. Mm -hmm. Um, and I just wasn't surprised at all. Mm -hmm. Um, and luckily for me about four years ago, my dad and I had a good three years where I really tried to, um, make amends. Um, and, and tell him that I love him and tell him that I care for him. But he just never has been willing to, I think he's just never been willing to forgive himself. So mm-hmm. of course, I mean, the pain that he must harbor, I'm sure is, yeah. you know, probably a hundredfold of whatever, you know, is inside you. And you know, that imprinting that takes place when you're a youngster, that doesn't go away, man. You know, that's, it takes a lot of work to kind of overcome that and those patterns and, and kind of those buttons that get pushed when you're, you know, sort of probably in the orbit of somebody like that or who's some, somebody who's putting out that kind of energy around yeah. you. Toxic. It was just really toxic. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sorry it, to hear that. No, it's all right. It, it, it's, it, you know, I, I, I can talk freely about it. Man, this is probably the first time I've actually talked about it since I heard um, of my dad, you know, I, I was leaving for Kenya the, the, you know, the night that I found out. Um, and, um, you know, I, I didn't attend the funeral. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that, uh, like I said, it, it's, it's an after school special, uh, right. uh, on drugs, uh, basically as far as what my family life was like. So when I was 17, man, I, I hit the bricks. You were out of I there. was gone. Yeah. And, uh, is that when you went into the army? Yep. I went into the army to get college money to pay for art school. Right. I wanted to be an artist. (laughs) Who goes into the army to be an artist? (laughs) Yeah, it was, uh, like out of some weird Stanley Kubrick movie or uh, something. Dude, I was, I thought I was a lot cooler than I was, man. I went into the army as a rebel. Um, 
And Where did you do your like base training? I went to uh, Fort Leonardwood, Missouri, uh-huh. um, and then I went to Sam Houston at the uni- uh, the the Academy of Health and Science. Um, it's kind of where I started to dip my toe into medicine mm-hmm. um, and became a medic. And then I uh, went to Europe and um, started to kind of slide down the same slope my dad did. Mm-hmm. Um, it's funny how that happens. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Despite every fiber of your being, like saying, I'll never be like my dad. Yeah. Yeah. I really, I mean, were you conscious of that when it was happening or what was going on? Uh, y- yes and no. I mean, you know, g- going to Germany, um, where were you in Wiesbaden? In Bommelder. I've uh-huh. been to Wiesbaden though. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, I had, I had met Rhonda by then, you know, mm-hmm. my wife and I had met, um, she was in college and I was a, in high school. I saw my wife when I was in seventh grade and I was gone. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I love, I love Rhonda Moore, um, every second of the day, I just, I, so I was totally, uh, you guys got married at 19. So you were a year and a half into the army or something like that. Yeah. I came back. I came back. I actually, um, I've never told this story publicly, but I actually, right. I'm um, make you say that a couple times today. Well, dude, <laughs> you know what? If you're nice enough to have me here, yeah. I'll, I'm nice enough to bleed all over you. Um, I'm laying the groundwork here for a, for a great finish. Uh, but, um, yeah, I went to Europe and Rhonda went to Japan. She studied in eight, she studied uh, at the university of Michigan, mm-hmm. um, Japanese. And, uh, I went to Germany and thought I was a rock and roll star. So, right. um, I, I lived the life, um, and I was committed to Rhonda, but, but you're still in the army. Yep. Or you, so you're moonlighting as, as a musician. Well, right? I knew like, that that's where, that's kind of where the seeds of music started to be planted. You know, I went and got, I went and saw, saw I went and saw concerts and started to kind of tinker around with the guitar. Um, uh, but I also, who were the bands that were, dude, I went and saw Soundgarden. So I, I was on stage with Chris Cornell. Wow. Um, I saw Soundgarden. How did that happen? Hold on a second. He, uh, <laughs> We went to a really small club and, uh, it was on his, um, super unknown. Actually, it's the 20 year anniversary of super unknown. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, oh man, all these women were throwing, um, bras up on stage. And, uh, he said that he'd like somebody to throw some underwear, some pants on stage. Uh-huh. So, so I threw you my, took your pants off. I took my pants there. off and yeah. threw them up on stage. I had my underwear on and that's a dad move, dude. I got, I, I crowd surfed up to the, to the stage and he handed me back my pants and then I was yarded off and the next rolling stone, it talks about a stupid GI that threw his jeans up on. Oh on really? Stage. Yeah. Oh, it's so, in print. So that was my, uh, 15 seconds of fame over there. But so did you form a band with some guys in the army or no, but I, I started to play. Um, you know, I'd met my closest friend, Brandon in the military. We were both, um, we were listening to headphones at the same time and I looked over at him and he looked over at me and we both thought we, we were both were like, who's that cocky looking jerk? And we were listening to the same U2 album. Uh-huh. Um, so it was destiny. It was destiny. It was, it was destiny in the, yeah. under the Joshua tree. Um, but I started to play music and started talking to my brothers about forming a band once I got out of the, got out of the military. Um, so, so yeah. then you can you come back to the U S and, Yep. I, I came back, got married, went back with Rhonda, um, spent the first year and a couple of months of our marriage there. And that's when I figured out, um, there being in Germany. Oh, okay. I yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, that's where I figured out I better get a handle on my alcohol. Mm-hmm. And I was only 20 years old and I, I knew something was brewing. And Rhonda told me we had spent a weekend in Spain together. <clears throat> Rhonda's like, I love you too much to see this happen for the rest of our lives. So, um, it was new year's Eve. She's like, you better figure something out. Mm-hmm. Um, and I haven't touched a, I, I haven't drank a beer since. Wow. Good for you. Um, 
So that's uh, yeah, that could have taken a very different turn for you. Yeah, it it, it really. Um, it's tough being 19. That's really young too. Yeah. And then, and then just, uh, yeah, it was, it was a whirlwind. The first 20 years I think were, were quite like as, as much as that, um, of me talking there for the last couple of minutes, it was that much of a whirlwind for me. It just mm-hmm. seemed like I was starting to build the bricks of endurance racing and I didn't even know it. Mm-hmm. I mean, how much of that, like, sort of experience of growing up, you know, sing, essentially a single mom, you know, abusive mm-hmm. household, and and the patterning that takes place there? I mean, how how much of that do you think informs some of the decisions you make today, or or, or like how you? I'm I've certainly, it, I'm sure it informs how you parent your kids. Yeah, you know, you're a great dad and all of that, so it's it's pretty clear and evident there. But kind of like behind the scenes, like whether it's with your, you know the charity work that you're doing or the work that you do with your church or your racing and all of that. I mean, how does it, I, I think a lot of it actually, you know, in the tail end of my, my teens, my mom and dad started going to church and, and it screwed me up. It, mm-hmm. it really jacked up my idea of who these people were telling me God was and who I saw God being in my home. It just, things didn't make sense to me. I I wanted nothing to do with it. I seriously wanted nothing to do with Jesus, nothing to do with God. I wanted, I I wanted nothing to do with any of that because to see my dad, my mom in church on Sunday and then Sunday night, my dad kicking the crap out of us. It just didn't make sense. Too much dissonance. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, and having said that, um, uh, that obviously plays a big role in my example towards Ian and Evelyn, mm-hmm. you know, as a, as a Christian dude in a, um, in, in my home, man, it's, mm-hmm. it's challenging enough as it is to be a dad, let alone trying to mix it up with, with crap, you know, I mm-hmm. mean, I mean, do you feel like, so, so when you're young and you, you're, you're drinking too much or whatever, and you're like, Oh man, you know, mm-hmm. I'm sort of showing shades of my dad that, you know, I didn't think that I had, I mean, do you, do you feel like some of that stuff, do you have to work like overtime to overcome some of those, some, maybe some of those things that might be more inbred in you that, that you care to admit because of just yeah, what I, you grew up around? Or? Yeah, I, I think, I think at 19 and tw- like when I went over to Europe before Rhonda and I got married that year and a half, two years that I spent over there alone, I just chalked it up to to, to pay my dues. You, yeah, you know I mean, what I mean? That, you're just young. You yeah. Know. Young and stupid, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but after that first year that, uh, Ron and I were married, there was a couple of instances where, um, I both Ron and I took a step back. I'm like, man, what's up, dude? Um, so from that point on, meaning like, what do you mean? Like meaning like, like, uh, you know, I smoked, I was a smoker for mm-hmm. a couple of years before I re- realized even before how health conscious I am now that I just felt like crap smoking. But, um, you know, like the time that Ron, we came back from Spain together and Ron was like, you know, babe, do, 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 I, this is not good. Like, do you realize last night I helped you off the floor? Um, you know, in a pool of your own sick by the mm-hmm. toilet. Um, and I'm like, I know, I know. And, um, it just, there was a couple of occurrences there where Rhonda loved me enough to be, mm-hmm. you know, I'm sensing a pattern here Yeah, with, uh, Rhonda yep. basically keeping you in line. Well, no, <laughs> <laughs> come on, dude. <laughs> yeah. Initially, initially she steered me on course, but now, yeah. but now, uh, now I wear the no, pants. I mean, I'm in fairness. Yeah. I, I get the idea that your marriage is, is, is quite an amazing partnership. It, dude, I mean, it is. Yeah. 20, dude, we're going, it's, what is today? Today is the, uh. 20, March 22nd. So 22 years, 26. three years, 22 years, three months and 
yeah, 20, 26 time. days. Yeah. You're married at 19 and, and yeah. still be, you know, in love and have a functional marriage and all of that. I mean, that is not easy to do. That's crazy. No, man, I, I feel blessed. I, I just, uh, I, I do. I physically, spiritually, emotionally, um, I'm just more attracted to her than, than anything. Mm-hmm. Um, so, all right, but all right, back to the rock right, and roll dream. Right, rock and roll dream. So we laid <laughs> yeah. the groundwork. I'm I'm screwed up. I'm on my way to be a rock and roll star. Um, I get my crap together before I come back to the United States, and I call my my older brother and my younger brother and say, "I'm let, let's do this. Let's let's start a band." Um, and they were musicians too. At this we point all just kind of picked up the instruments at right. the at the same time. Um, and we struggled. Did you come back to Michigan? No, we went to Michigan. I didn't want to stay in Michigan. Uh-huh. I wanted nothing to do with it. Um, so we took off to, to Utah. My, my older brother, who was in the Air Force, got kicked out of the Air Force. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> and uh, he's just stayed there. So I mo- we moved there, and my, my younger brother Daniel came out from Michigan. Um, and then another guy who ended up being uh, one of those guys that you hear about in bands that just was a total, um, the most selfish, self-centered, egotistical, um, maniacal person you'd ever meet. But you don't recognize it because you want the band to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, Every band's got a guy like that. Yeah. Well, you kind of need a guy like that, yeah. too. You well, know? yeah, he's he, he, literally another one of the most twisted people I've ever met. But nonetheless, <laughs> um, the, the, core, the core band that my brothers and I had, we lasted for about six years. Uh-huh. Um, and then That's it, a good run. Yeah, it was good. I mean, I mean we, what, did, were you touring? Did yeah, you make, we, did, you, we, we did a couple of... Um, we didn't tour like you would think, like tour tour, but we opened up for some bigger local bands and had some um, some moderate exposure in Salt in the Salt Lake City rock scene. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I broke off and left my brothers. I, I just couldn't take it because they had they liked to enjoy other things that they're you know. I just um, it's the the age old artistic differences kind of separated right, us. Right. Um, and then uh, I joined a couple different bands and had my. I mean, were you doing that full time? No, like I was. Working? Yeah, I was working as a CNA man. I was a, a, a certified nurse assistant at a, at an uh, old folks home, uh-huh. um, just trying to to get by. Right. Um, and then the first thing that kind of knocked me off course uh, was when Evelyn, my daughter, contracted encephalitis, and she almost how died. Old, how old was three she? Half, she's happened? three. Uh-huh. Yeah, we spent about two and a half months in the hospital, and she uh, she went from three year old to one week old. Physically and mentally, she wow. just yeah. It was it was the, one of the one of the big big things in my life that I I've come to the conclusion and finally figured out that there's nothing that God won't use that we consider too important for Him to draw us back to Him. Mm-hmm. And when I saw how um out of control I really am with my daughter, she just uh, spiraled, and we spent it was it was a nightmare. So. so that snaps you into kind of adulthood, I suppose. Yeah. Right. So, so encephalitis, that's like a viral infection of the brain, well, the, right? She fell into like an undiagnosable bracket where they couldn't figure like they couldn't figure out what was going on with her. She started to seize. Um, she lost her ability to, to talk first wow. and then walk and then move. And then she was, um, yeah, she just literally just shut down from the outside in. Um, and, and then was she hospitalized? Oh yeah. We were in the hospital term, for right? two, over two months. So how did you get to the other side of that? Um, I really do believe that this was one of the first wake up calls for me. Um, like I said, spiritually, um, 
I don't know that I ever really got to the other side until years down the road. Um, I mean, it was years of rehab for mm-hmm. Evelyn, mm-hmm. um, physical therapy, learning how to talk, learning how to write again. I mean, she was, you know, she was wow. an a- active, um, but that kind of was a big jolt for me, which is one of the reasons why we have such a, such a span between Evelyn and Ian in six years. Cause I got gun shy, man. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I can't handle that again. And yeah, that's heavy stuff, but it, it is interesting how that sort of created a new trajectory for you kind of spiritually or interpersonally. And it's just weird how it takes, you know, painful, <laughs> traumatic events to trigger that. It's like, I, I kind of wish the human system was wired to be more uh, prone or open to personal growth without the jarring crisis Dude, your to book. catalyze it. You know Dude, I mean? that's your book, man. I mean, your well, book from front to seriously. I didn't have a daughter with encephalitis. Yeah, I, I mean, know, I think that, that we all, I think we all have things that happen. Yeah. Right. And so the question becomes, do those, like, are you aware enough to see the signals or to pay attention or to kind of understand that maybe, you know, you should reevaluate how you're living your life or not. It was, it was such a wake up call for me. And I didn't have like, I didn't have a foundation. I don't have the, like, I didn't have the, the relationship with Christ that I have now to get, I I just, I was like, I was freaking just, I was, I was just flapping. Um, and, and it, it, Ron and I suffered tremendously from that. Mm -hmm. Like it was just, it was, it was one of the, the cruxes of my life that, like I said, dude, like, like, like in your book, when you talk about, um, the hundred days that you'd spent, like it just, um, you know, C.S. Lewis always says that pain is sometimes the, the whisper uh, or pain is the, the voice in the megaphone that God uses to rile a deaf world. Like, mm-hmm. all right, fine, idiots. If you're not going, I mean, um, right, and, let's uh, shake it up a little. Yeah. And it's not, to, not to say that he, not to say that he like, um, you know, it, it doesn't, it doesn't cause that. And, and I know it's kind of a deeper subject, but at the same time, I realized I'm running from this. Where I go for the rest of my life depends on where I run to. Mm-hmm. And, and like, I, I remember thinking to myself, I had heard at the time, um, everybody thirsts, but a lot of people drink from the toilet. And I'd mm-hmm. fi- that was the first time I realized like, man, I've been, I've been trying to quench a part of me and my family with this musician dream band. And it just, it's, it, it's, it was very similar to an athlete training and the effects that, that, that it has on your family when you're in a band, because mm-hmm. you have to dedicate just as much time, just as much money, just as much effort. Um, so it definitely, but I think, you know, I, I think it's, it's a question of what, you know, ultimately your destiny was meant to be. Like if you were, if you were meant to be in a successful rock band and maybe you're, intentions were you know more true and maybe you're it wasn't more you know about your ego or whatever like and we didn't suck like well i mean seriously i mean you weren't supposed to be that wasn't the path you were supposed to be on right right? so it's sort of like this this little you know earthquake happens that that course corrects you so for somebody else you know maybe being a rock musician is what they're supposed exactly and luckily at the time it was it was kind of in vogue that you really didn't want to play your music (laughs) like Mm -hmm. your instruments that was cool right yeah Yeah. so what year are we talking about here? So this would be like, this would be like 94. Yes. Yeah. Uh, like no, no, grunge. no. We, cause Ron and I were married in, uh, I got back from the mil- back in the States around 94. So yeah, like 95, 96, 97, 98. Those were the years that, um, so it's a little like post Nirvana. Yeah. Well, yeah. It, it, post Nirvana, like pre, um, 
like Mud Honey, Green River, the, the whole mm. Seattle scene was moving, but pavement. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, man. Uh, Fugazi was big. I was, right. um, well, actually, Fugazi was earlier. Yeah, they were earlier. Yeah, they're but DC but Rollins band. band. You know, that's when Henry Rollins started. He came out with mm. Wait, which was a killer album, and School of Fish. So and, you were into like kind of the hardcore stuff. Yeah, I I, I do. It's so funny because when we I picked you up from the airport and we're driving back and we get a FaceTime call from John Joseph. <laughs> From the Crow Mags. Crow Mags. Yeah. Yeah, And if you've listened to the podcast, you you probably heard our a couple episodes with him. Yeah. When I when I when we moved to California, I was in the band that I was in out here called Something About Today. I actually recorded in San Francisco um, with uh, with Dave Silva, who was in Bad Radio, the -hmm. band that Eddie Vedder took off from to go join Pearl Jam. Oh, wow. And the drummer went to Four Non Blondes. Well, I hooked up with Dave Silva in Palm Springs, and we started this band um, and went and recorded a, a small EP in, uh, where the, in San Francisco where Santana um, rec- uh, recorded. And uh, that was probably the closest thing or the closest time I'd ever had to you were get... Like brushing up against. Yep, yeah, it was really, really cool. Yeah. Um, he was playing me... Uh, early recordings of Better Man that Eddie Vedder was writing. Just really cool. Oh, wow. Um, really cool stuff. So there's that, but then there's, then there's real life, there's family, there's yep. kids, there's, yep. there's this crisis, encephalitis, but you get, you get to the other side of this slowly, right? And, and, um, and I, I take it that around this time, you know, you're starting to get serious about what you're going to do with your life, yeah. right? Like, so is this when being a paramedic comes in? Yeah, exactly. I, 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 um, we were living in, in California and, um, I had just found out that uh, we had just found out that, uh, Rhonda was pregnant with Ian. Um, she had come, she was a massage therapist and she went back for a seminar and came back to California. She had a cold sore on her lip. I was like, man, that's kind of jacked up, babe. You don't usually get that. And she's like, yeah, well, a week went by and she caught another one and we're getting ready to cook dinner. And I was like, I was like, dude, you are pregnant. And she's mm-hmm. like, I am not. I'm like, I didn't know cold sores are like an indicia of pregnancy. Dude, I just knew. I, I, I just, yeah. I was like, she's like, I am not pregnant. So I was like, I'll be right back. I literally picked up the keys and I got in my car and ran to the store on the corner. And this is when we were in La Quinta. And uh, I grabbed a pregnancy test and dude, it was like, it was like the sky was opening. Like she peed on. I was just like, oh! and the, the plus sign came up and she's like, what happened? And I'm like, what do you mean? What happened? Um, and biology happened. It scared the crap out of us. Uh-huh. Um, but, but at that, at that point, your daughter was in the, she was out of the, yeah, the woods, she was, yep. She was, so. she was recovering. She still had like some neurologic deficits. She still had fine motor skill problems. She had very like weird space awareness where she'd lose balance. Um, is she fine now? Yeah. Is she fully yep. recovered? Yep. And, and I think you said that you, you ultimately ended up homeschooling her for part of her education. Yeah. Rhonda actually, when we, when we finally moved from California to Oregon, starting out my transition from just getting into medicine and, and following my passion there. Um, yeah. Rhonda homeschooled Evelyn for a number of different reasons. Um, and one being the medical problems that, she, that we faced with her, but the other one was just probably for the same reason why you guys homeschool your kids. Mm. Yeah. So, but yeah, we did that for a couple of years and, um, and I just started it like, like I said, I started down the road to, to being a paramedic. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and and what was the reason for moving up to Portland for that? For that? Yeah, it was, we were in Palm Springs, and my wife and I were like, okay, we've been here for two years, and um, we had just gone through some of the most difficult things in our marriage. Um, it was a, it was rough. We had a really tough time. Um, we really had to work through some things that I think lingered from when Evelyn almost died and just some stuff, man, just some crap that people go through. Mm -hmm. And that's, that is the part of my life when I feel like God finally got a hold of my heart and said, all right, dude, check this out. Um, do you, so when you hit these rough spots in your marriage, I mean, what were the tools that you used to get through that? I mean, was that where Myself. The, the church I, came in or no, did you guys you know, go to therapy or how did that? I, 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 there, there was a time where I, I didn't want, I didn't want to have anything to do with the big church as the big C church. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't want anything to do with that. I didn't want anything to do with religion. I didn't want to have anything to do with ritual. Um, and I didn't want to have anything to do with myself because I kept on telling myself like, I can't wait for like five years from now or 10 years from now when I get to the person that I'm going to be. And the problem with that theory and idea is if I'm always trying to fix myself with myself and I end up with myself, ultimately I'm still dealing with a broken self. Well, you're trying to solve the problem with the problem. Exactly. Right? It's like trying you know to fix I mean? money with a credit card. It's like when they say uh, in recovery, you know, your best thinking got you here. You know, it's like exactly you're not, you're not solve this problem with your brain because your brain is what got you in this problem to begin with. Dude, I figured out nobody lies to myself more than me. I mean, seriously, you don't, even today, nobody lies to me more than I do, even when I don't think I'm doing it. And, um, I just, I just felt like I'd gotten to the point where both Ron and I just felt like we were like, if this is the pinnacle of what you get as your human experience on this planet, um, and we're screwing it up this bad. Mm Mm-hmm. Where do we go from here? Um, and I think the biggest thing for me was there was a point where I met a couple of guys from a church in, in, in Palm Springs. It was a mega church. Um, and they were, they were just cool guys. They were musicians and I, they were flawed. And I, it was the first time ever I had somebody tell me, dude, God loves you. He's not an angry God that's pissed off because you're a piece of crap and you're like, my idea of God was so wrapped around my idea of my own father. It freaking screwed me up, dude. Mm -hmm. Um, And I didn't realize that until that time. But like when I hear people, when I started hearing people telling me, hey man, God loves you. God loves you. And it, I didn't want to hear it. It didn't, it didn't start, it didn't make sense. But that's when we started going to church. That's when I started to realize it's not about religion. It's about a relationship. And I realized seeing people in my life that were very religious around me up until that point, religion either left them feeling very pride, like proud because they could check the boxes or in the bar because they didn't check enough. Mm-hmm. And it just didn't, it didn't make, make sense to me. So that's when Ron and I were like, all right, we're getting in the back seat. Take charge. Um, so was that like a, was there like a specific moment where you remember that happening or yeah. was that a, did, yep. what, what exactly triggered that? Um, it's, it just was a series of, um, I think it was a series of events that led both Rhonda and I to a counselor that said, um, you either go all in or you go all out. Um, and if you're going to go all in, um, and you, you do it without Christ, then you'll end up the statistic that so many people do. Um, 
And for us, that was what we decided to do. We're like, all right. And this was like seven, eight years and, you know, seven years or so in. And, um, dude, I thought I had figured it out. I, I really did rich. I really thought I had, I really thought I figured it out. Um, and so did Rhonda and we didn't. Well, I think that, that, that sort of brings up this idea of, you know, when you say you figured it out, it kind of means like, okay, like I'm on cruise control. Like I've been married seven years, eight years, right. like I, you know, she knows me, I know her, right. we're in our pattern and we can just ride this thing out yep. and life doesn't work that way. You know, you're either, you're either growing or you're regressing Dude, or your told- relationship is decaying or it's becoming stronger. And that's something that I don't really want to embrace and something that I forget on a daily basis in every aspect of my life from my marriage to, you know, sobriety to fitness to, I mean, it's, it's obvious in fitness, you're either getting stronger, you're getting weaker, you know, but it's very (laughs) applicable to, you know, all areas of personal growth, spiritual, emotional, and mental, but it's very easy to fall into like, uh, I'm just gonna, you know, I'm just gonna relax into this. And I think the moment that you do that, at least I, I, I should just speak from my own personal experience. If I do that in my marriage, if I do that in my career, if I do that with endurance training, mm-hmm. that's not going to go well. Dude, the, the theme throughout your book, and Rhonda and I, because Rhonda read the book too, is comfort retards growth. Mm-hmm. I'm like, seriously, whenever anybody gets comfortable, and, and, and I say that all the time, like life is dynamic. You are either growing or you're dying. Um, and I know that's a very like romanticized way to look at it, but dude, it's the truth and it doesn't have to just correlate with, um, sport or parenting, but it can, Mm. it can be, there's micro and macro elements to life and right. Dude, every single one of them have that theme in it. Um, and you know, I think that there's a lot of value in embracing that concept. I mean, that, that was, that's kind of in part what motivated that blog post that I put up about like stop hacking your the life, hack, life and, hacking. Cause I just, I'm getting so turned off by this culture of, of let's find the quick fix or the end run around the thing so we can get to the finish line right. quicker and right. easier and more comfortably. And it's, you know, my experience is it's not about that at all. It's, it's what you just said. It's, embracing the discomfort, getting comfortable with the uncomfortable, like welcoming the, the pain and the suffering and the challenge and the obstacles and, and all of that, like the whole thing. And that's where the beauty and of course the hardship, but, but the true value and the meaning and the sense of satisfaction ultimately comes from. Right. Well, and I, you know, Epic five Ultraman, those are, those are metaphors for those experiences. Totally. You know, dude. You're not going to like hack your way through. I mean, I suppose you could, you could find the way to like train the least amount for that race and, and get through it. So you can <laughs> check the box exactly. that thing. But, but how do you feel on the other side of that? Like, I know that, you know, when you crossed that finish line at Ultraman this past year, that you did absolutely everything you could to put in the maximum performance that you were capable of. And that was demonstrated by your aggressive race tactics throughout <laughs> of pushing the limit, you know, very early on and, right. and, and, and all of that. And so, you know, lose or win or fall or stand tall. Like when you, when you were done with that experience, I can guarantee you that you'll tell me that you have a sense of yourself and a sense of satisfaction that is irreplaceable. Yeah, totally. And, and it's, um, well, dude, I talked to you every day in Hawaii, mm-hmm. um, before my stages, just for a little bit of encouragement and guidance and direction. Um, 
Ditto, man. I mean, you, you, it's the same way with you. I watched you do it through the Epic five first though. I think that's what kind of, um, lit, lit the fire for me is just, uh, watching you perform. Um, and dude, I don't, I, I don't know that you necessarily, this is the part of the podcast I told Ron that might make you feel uncomfortable, <laughs> but, um, I don't think you realize like, You know, I was telling you in the car earlier today that I watched another interview with you last night before I came down here. And dude, the way you're doing what you're doing is really amazing, Rich. Like, it's really, really good, dude. Um, And watching you race or watching you compete or watching you talk or reading what you write or listening to you speak, you're just doing it in a way that is wholesome. And I really, 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 really want you to know that I'm not blowing smoke. And I do, um, I just... For those of you that are listening, I've been talking nonstop since I got here, um, and it's not because I'm nervous around Rich, but I think it's because I'm maybe too comfortable, um, but I just want you to know that. Thanks, man. Yeah, I man. appreciate that. I know, dude, and I, I really, really just am glad to be your friend. Um, so The feeling is mutual, man. Right on, dude. Um, Moving on. Yeah, let's... let's uh, Copy no, that. I'm flustered. I'm blushing, <laughs> Christian. No, I appreciate that. Thanks very much. Um so you find this solution that's working for your marriage and is giving you um, maybe a greater sense of, of purpose and belonging in your life. And you could be just cruising along for the, re- the remainder of your life. You have a good career. Um, your marriage is on track. You have two healthy kids after this crisis. Yep, yep. And so where is this, you know, where, where did this itch to kind of get into endurance sports start to creep into your life? Uh, I think initially it was when, um, Ron, when Ron and I finally made it up to Oregon, which we've lived, we've lived in Oregon longer than we've lived anywhere else, 12 years now. Mm-hmm. So we feel like it's kind of our home for sure. Um, we started going to West Valley, West Valley community church, <clears throat> which is a really cool place. I, I play in the worship band there and have for the last 11 years. And I had a speaker come from Eastern Europe and talk about in Gurgu, in Gurgu Romania, talk about, um, a program that's over there that once a week, these kids from these outlying communities get to come and bring their clothes and have all their clothes washed and take a hot shower. Mm-hmm. And it just resonated with me. I'm like, I love comfortable, you know, I love comfortable t-shirts. And I love hot showers. Um, and I said, I told my wife, I'm like, I'm gonna do a marathon and I'm going to raise 5,000 bucks for this organization. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what I did. So it came really from a place of, I want to be of service to this organization as much as it came from a place of, I want to challenge myself physically. Yes. Yeah. Right. Because I've always, I, I figured out by then, Rich, that I was, I was built to be kind of a runner, kind of like a Dean Carnassus, kind of a little bit shorter, a little bit stockier, a little bit. Um, but I, I could always, um, I just, I You're just not shorter than Dean. Oh no, I, I'm not, huh? No. Well, pictures can be deceiving. Um, but I think I have more of a, well, I guess how, dude, how tall are you? Uh, barely six feet. Okay. Cause when I was standing next to you today, I'm wearing these awesome flip-flops that have lifts on them. Uh Um, it just kind of dawned on me. I'm like, yeah, I feel a little bit taller next to rich roll. Um, I'm not that tall. And, Come on, go ahead. Anyway, uh, <laughs> dude, where was I, I man? This, co- this coffee. We're talking about like no, the, the, we were, what we're. What I was really driving at is this idea um, of integrating service into. It's because it's, it's how I'm wired. Yeah. And, and that seems to be like 
from the very beginning, you know, yep. sort of first and foremost yep. in everything that you've done. And we're going to get into all of the kind of more current stuff, but yep. I didn't know that that was kind of part of it at the inception. That, it, the, the funny thing is too, is I flew to Vegas for this marathon. I found the one that, you know, I, and I resonate with what you write in your book too. Like I found it, I had a focus, I had a goal. I'm going to do the marathon. Um, I flew to Vegas cause that's where Rhonda's family lives. And I ran the marathon, raised this money, um, got it to the, to the people that needed it. And that night, Rhonda and I went to a spa and relaxed and lo and behold, I lean over and pick up a tattered magazine that says Ironman Kona qualifiers. And on the front of it is Chris Lieto. Oh, wow. Who's got his fingers up. Um, and I told my wife, I'm like, man, when I was eight years old, I used to, I watched this Julie Moss on TV, crapper mm-hmm. pants and crawl through the, you know, and I've always told people, you either have two responses to that is when am I going to do it or why am I going to do it? And mm-hmm. I told my mom, I remember saying, mom, I'm going to do that someday. So I told my wife, I'm like, babe, I'm going to do the Iron Man. She's like, oh, what? <laughs> so the flame was lit, but like backing it up, had, did you play sports in high school? Uh, I tried. I was a really good baseball player. Um, but you weren't on the cross-country team? No, nope, nope. I tried track for a year, and they threw me in the two-mile. Uh-huh. I ran two-mile. I sucked at it. I came in last all the time. Right. Um, I played a little bit of baseball. Um, I tried football for a year. I was like, this is stupid. Um, and then I was in the school play for the final years of my high school. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, dude, I, my, my buddies always make fun of me. They're like, dude, you wear black turtlenecks and listen to Depeche Mode. So. Right. So, I mean, in high school, were you, like, hanging out with the, the, the party crowd or the jocks? Or, like, did, what clique did you fall into? The lame click the lame, like, like, <laughs> Dude, all right I, I was uh I, I was good buddies with with people from kind of the eat, different groups the, the different clicks yeah right. I, re- I really but but dude I was kind of a I was kind of a dark man I yeah. mean um and my wife tells me now no you weren't babe you people liked you uh-huh. and I'm like thanks Stuart Smalley but uh <laughs> but I uh all right, so you're a dork. You didn't. You, you could barely run the two mile. Yep. You didn't have any real experience with endurance training or kind of athletic performance in any kind of real way. N- not to the military. So yeah. All right. So the military gives you structure, right? That probably gave you the tools that you needed to kind of set that goal. Yeah, and, and they forced it. In, yeah. in terms of the marathon, yeah. and you got to run every day for right. hours. Did you so. get like some online plan or like just how did you figure out what your program was going to be? Exactly about? that. I, I, I like to read, um, so I got a book, studied. I didn't do twelve. I ran like a 330. It wasn't anything mm-hmm. or 340. It, it, it was not good. Um, but, uh, but that's a huge accomplishment. Right. I mean, for a first marathon and a guy who's never been a runner, right. you know, like you, you went well under four hours. Yeah. Well, I guess I shouldn't say it's not good. That's, yeah. that's probably crap. I, it's, it's it, for the 330, 340 runners. It's really good. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, how do I get out of this? You're, you're stuck. With uh, it, it, was, mean, you're, it wasn't to my potential. It wasn't yeah, to my to your, potential. To your potential right. and kind of some of the things that you've done since. Right. Right. So you did it, but that spark was immediately lit. And so Instantly. It is, it's, it's either one of two things, either like, I'll never do that again, or like, when, you know, when's the next no, one? No, dude, it was, it was literally like, I remember Rhonda ran with me for a couple, couple hundred yards at mile 18, and I knew that it was, it was game on for me. And that was in 2000 and how old were you? I was, so that would have been 2006. No, no, 2000, 2004, 2004, Uh, 2006 was my, the first time I did uh, Ironman Florida, Mm -hmm. but 2004 is I I ran the, the marathon. All right. So the sparks lit. And then did you, what did you immediately go out and get a bike or what happened? Yep. (laughs) Over the course, over the course of, over the course of the next two years, I did. I started pre med, then I I went to paramedic school, um, 
I started paramedicine, started to, 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 I was dabbling my, my hands and fingers and all kinds of stuff. Cause I was working in the emergency room. I, I, I had kind of a knack for medicine. Um, and then I started to look into running my next marathon, which I did. Um, and I ran a sub three thirty. I'm like, okay, I, I f- I'm figuring this out. And then, um, I got a coach and did 12 triathlons my first year. Wow. Um, so gung ho, dude, it was great. I, I did excellent too. I made, uh, the first or second year, it was, I made the U S team to go to France, oh, wow. um, the age group nationals, which I didn't take, which was kind of cool. Um, it seemed like a bigger deal at the time, but it's really kind of just like an, a way to get a good way. But, um, and so where'd you learn how to swim then? Uh, oh, I grew up in like, like, I mean, so you just grew up swimming in the lake. Yeah. The because, because we were in Detroit for like six or seven years, then in the suburbs for another couple of years. And then we moved to the upper peninsula. So mm. I was up on, on lakes. Oh, you lived on the UP. Yeah. Yeah. In the wintertime. Yes. Oh dude. Dude. It was, <laughs> it, like was ice fishing it was, it was bizarre. It was bizarre. Oh hell. Yes, dude. My yeah. dad would ice fish all the time. He'd get, he'd drink and ice Bears fish. And stuff. He'd maybe sit in the living room and look out the window and watched when the chem lights would come on uh-huh. and go, dude, I hated it. I, I was not an outdoor guy. I hated hunting. I hated fishing. Um, and I work with a bunch of firefighters at work. That's all they do is hunt right. and fish and work on cars. Um, well, some of the, them. You're the crazy guy with the shaved legs. I mean, yeah, in the, in it, the seriously scheme of things like you're the whack job, right? Yeah. All right. So 12, 12 triathlons in your first year, but, and, and so you're kind of showing immediate promise though, if you're like, you know, getting selected for these teams and, and, and the like, right? Yeah. I think it was more just an, just a example of willing yourself to do something versus, cause I, I don't think I'm a raw talented athlete by any means. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I say something like that, it's not by, by any stretch to make myself look like it just, I, I just kind of that first and second year you have that like, honeymoon phase where every you get better and better and better with every race um until the plateau phase hits mm-hmm. and then you're left you know like crap what do i do right and so 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 iron man just is the is a progression of this idea yep. right so yep. so when's the first iron man 2006 i went down to so run two years after your first marathon yeah marathon. ron and i drove across country to florida right it was a blast yeah, yeah you, was, did, you found the flattest, the flattest uh, Ironman, right? I guess Arizona's pretty flat too. Uh, yeah. Well, uh, no, Arizona's not as flat as as Florida, but Florida, Florida. F- Florida's flat. Mm-hmm. And so, how'd that go? Uh, I got like a eleven thirty. Mm-hmm. It was it was tough, man. Right. I didn't but, know what I was but doing. You finished. Yeah, I didn't know what I was doing though. And so, you're not like this immediate overnight success at nope. Ironman or anything. Not like at that. all. Uh huh. And so, what was the takeaway from that? The takeaway was I want to go to Kona. Mm-hmm. Like seriously, I became ob- obsessed, dude, right. obsessed to the, to the umph degree. So you just fully geeked out. I did, man. I, all I took the magazine. I drove, I do. <laughs> I drove my wife totally. I drove my wife and everybody around me insane at work, at church, at home. Um, it's, it's a bad place for somebody with ADHD to be dude. Cause, mm-hmm. um, uh, and I say that with all kindness, uh, I think everybody has a form of ADHD, but, um, I own it now, dude. Um, but yes, I became obsessed. And how did you balance being a dad and being a father, or, you know, being a husband? Well, dude, it worked out perfect. Cause my wife became a school teacher. So during the days that I don't work, my wife goes to school with the kids and I have, you know, 48 hours, sometimes longer than that, depending on what days of the week by myself. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so this is when I started so it's a schedule that can either get you into a lot of trouble or you can channel that into dude, something, I some think, obsessive dude, activity like this. I think God wired us, wired men, especially to be tired. I think a man with energy is a dangerous thing. Mm-hmm. And I found that out many times. So I'd agree with that. Yeah. The, the fatigue incurred by, um, it was an asset, mm-hmm. uh, to say the least. Um, yeah, man. So that's what happened, bro. I, I just started to, so you made this plan like this, w- w- like a one year plan or a two year plan or what was the idea? No, dude, at first I don't think I was that forth. I didn't have that much foresight and thinking. Um, I just wanted to, I was like, man, I'm going to uh, next race. I'm, I'm qualified for going Kona. in next right. race. I'm qualified for Kona. Um, and you start like hanging out with all the triathletes in Portland and no, not really. I, I, I became friends with one guy who actually started later than I did and became better than I did. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, which was cool. Um, but I, 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 that's when I kind of became affiliated with the athletes lounge mm-hmm. uh, became good friends with Gary there. Um, and then that's when I met Chris Boudreaux. Right. Um, and, and for the listener athletes lounge is like a, is it a shop or it's like a, it was actually voted one of the top 10 best triathlon retail stores mm-hmm. in all America last month. But it's, it's also kind of like a hub of the community, yep. Yep. right? Like I know Terenzo, yeah. who's been on the podcast, who's spent time training down here, but he goes up there yep. and trains in Portland and is part of that. Whole Barb Lindquist was just there last week. Right. Um, they have cooking stuff there. And Chris Boudreaux is a very successful... Yeah, dude, he's a stud. ...professional triathlete yeah, yeah. who ultimately became your coach. And, and really good friend. He, he, he is... Uh, now, if there had been triathletes like that around when I first started, I would have loved to hang around. But I was insecure and unsure of myself. So I just thought, man, I got to stick with this. I got a, I got a coach from a, of a fitness club and spent hours reading books. Were you like one of those guys who just went out and just hammered as hard as he could no. in every workout? No, or because you, I, you'd read up enough to know. Yeah, that that I did. A, I did have some direction and I wasn't, I, I, I could see, I could see I had something brewing here. Like I knew, okay, I got to assess this. Could I be good at this? Yes. Um, but no, dude, I didn't just go smash fest like Simon Lessing does every time he goes out the door. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, so, so where, how does this play out at least on the Ironman landscape? Uh, it took me, I used it as another tool, obviously to do some more fundraising, which was pretty cool. Cause I was able to affiliate myself with, with organizations that I felt strongly about. And then, um, I got a good coach. I got a really good coach, David Cavarella, um, up in Portland. He, um, is a, is a really decent athlete and he coached me in four weeks before I was racing Ironman Coeur d'Alene, spending a year with him, having him build me to the point where I knew I was going to qualify for Kona. I got offered to go to Haiti mm-hmm. and, uh, that's when my overseas bug got in me where I'm like, ah, oh, this is it, man. This is, so I remember I was on the trainer and I, called David. I'm like, Hey dude, I got a curveball thrown at me. I'm going to be going to Haiti. He's like, you're not going to Kona then I'm telling you straight up. He's like, you're not going to Kona dude. Um, and I'm like, I got to go, I got to go. So I went over there and that, that first trip changed my life. So what year was that? That would have been 2007, 2007, 2007, 2008, somewhere in there. So it's this, again, it's this interrelationship or this balance of service and endurance sports and Again, like the service aspect of it, kind of trumping the Dude, it, athletic it, component. It, it changed it. my life. I, I saw stuff over there that, and things happened to me. Like I remember Dave telling me, "Dude, if you can get out and run." And I was going to a sketchy part of Port-au-Prince. Mm-hmm. This was a little bit, a little bit like two years after. When was the earthquake? I'm trying to remember. So it was, so it was a year there, or two after you that. Were, you were there after that, but not immediately. Right, correct. That. And I remember thinking, you know, we were going to a compound that was walled, and it was in a, you know, in outside of Port-au-Prince a little bit, but there's super 
climbs up through the villages. And dude, I was, I was leaving at 4 a.m. in the morning mm-hmm. and running up through the villages. And <clears throat> this is when endurance hit me. One of the things that the lady that ran the mission said, she said, of all the medic- medical stuff that you did, um, the biggest effect you had on the people in the village was a white dude running up through the mountains in the mornings mm. and not thinking twice about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and dude, I was cutting off gangrene. I was, I had a guy come in that, you know, pretty swollen foot. Um, and it was at this time I told myself, I don't care if I ever go to Kona. Um, this guy came in on crutches. He'd walked for four hours to get to this clinic and I saw his foot swollen up, but it didn't smell. Mm-hmm. Like usually I'm like, Oh, I should smell really bad. And, um, he laid down on the table and I started talking to him and I looked at the bottom of his foot and he had a hole about the size of a baseball in the bottom of his foot. What? And I was trying to gather myself cause I'm an emotional guy and I took a tongue depressor and a flashlight and looked in the bottom of his foot and it was filled with maggots to the, uh. to the, I mean, crammed. Like when I, when I, when I pulled down, like maggots were falling out. Um, and it was right then, then there that I knew I'm like, this guy's gonna lose his foot. Mm-hmm. Like he's gonna, he's got to walk back to Port-au-Prince to go get his foot chopped off. And I remember thinking to myself, this is one of those things where I feel like God whispers in my ear. And this is one of those times where I, I thought of my own sin as a human being, how I can look at the part and wear the mask and be doing what I think I'm doing and not have it smell, but when you lift up the veil, there's maggots or, and right, it's this metaphor, dude. It was a huge metaphor for me. I, I remember I, I took the soles out of my shoes and put them into his. He had these like really crappy plastic Birkenstocks, and I talked to the to the guy that was running the the medical clinic, the the Haitian national that lives there, and off the guy went to get his foot chopped off. Mm-hmm. Um, so what, I mean, how does that even happen? Like, how did he, what happened to his foot? How do you get a infected, big hole in his foot? Just infected. And he lives out, he kind of lives out, you know, outside of Port-au-Prince and infection turns and there's not, how come really, it didn't smell? Dude, there, because the maggots were eating the ma- away the dead flesh. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, but there's no infrastructure there, dude. Like, yeah. So yeah, a year and a half, two years. It's, it's sort of like the new cycle of it's all about Haiti, right? In the aftermath, but then life goes on and we move on to the next story. Yeah, dude, and, and we that, forget. And, you know, uh, there's so much crap going on over there. It's still happening. Yep. I went back you know. again because um, I wanted to stay plugged in. Uh, and same sort of thing. I, I remember, you know, I, I was doing things for people, uh, cutting off gangrenous fingers. I mean, we were just doing like guerrilla medicine, dude. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had people trying to give me their chickens. And that's like giving a car away here. It's like their sense of food. That's what they, you know, that's their sense of food. So that's when the calls got into me and I thought it's more than the finish line. It's more than Kona. Mm -hmm. I mean, having said that, I still spent the following two years trying to get there. Right. So how long, I mean, how long were you there? So you get back and you've missed this training and. Yep. I went to Coeur d'Alene and got freaking hammered. I had a non-displaced rib fracture. I got a broken rib in the swim. Um, Where'd you get kicked in the ribs or something? I did. Uh The second lap going around, I got kicked and I didn't realize it was messed up until the run mm-hmm. and my coach was there next to me on the bike and I'm like something's wrong with my lung and he's like dude you're in 11th place I was in 11th place he's like keep going and um, I'm like crap I could do this and I folded around mile 19 went and got x-rays two days later and I cracked I had a mm. messed up rib and, and that was 2007 two, no that was 2008 2008 2008 okay. or, yeah somewhere in there 2009 and then um, went back to Haiti again uh, had another did Canada a couple times and then uh 
But the thing is, is like, you're not, you're not like stamping some major imprimatur on the Ironman world. Like, you know, you're, no. you're struggling, you're, you're a struggling age grouper. Who, yes. You know, maybe if you could put together a whole season without getting sick or having to go to Haiti, you know, you'd be in the mix to go to Kona, but yeah. you're not like lighting everyone up. So no, there, there isn't, there aren't like, you know, Christmas tree lights going off saying, you know, your destiny is to become this, uh, you know, endurance athlete. <laughs> I wanted you know, to, guy, though, dude. Right? I, yeah. I, dude I had so you have the passion, you have the focus, you're gung-ho, you're fully tri-geeked out the whole nine yards, right? But you're having trouble, like, actually converting. I, dude, I, I broke an hour in a sprint. I thought I was a king. I was like, that's a big deal for me. I came close to breaking two hours in a in an Olympic. The, the, mm-hmm. uh, I got a roll-down spot for Worlds uh, for, for the half, but the Ironman is where I wanted to really... Like, right. I don't, I don't know. Dude, I got like, sucked you in. You want to be like Chris Lieto and you want to be pointing to the sky, right? I, I, I got <laughs> I got in the dude, finish line from that magazine that you saw. Well, dude, how did you, how did you avoid, I mean, cause did you ever want Kona? I guess I did. Uh, I, you know, I don't know how I was very, um, of course. Uh, but I was also very impatient and, I didn't want to wait like a full year to go do an iron. <laughs> I was like, why does I didn't know? Seem, I didn't know. Well, first of all, so I didn't even get into the Like you, like in 2007, I was just beginning. Like I hadn't done anything yet. And I'd started working with a coach and I, and I, and I wanted like a big goal. Like I really, I wanted a goal that scared me. Who were you working core. with? Was that when you went Hoth? Did you with meet Chris Hoth? Howth. Yeah. yeah. I was with him from the very beginning. Yeah. And, uh, and all the Ironman races were kind of sold out for that year. You know, I was really going to have to wait another year. And I was, I'm trying to remember the timeline exactly, because I don't want to speak out of school. But essentially what happened was, you know, I could, I could wait another year and get into like Ironman Canada, you know, if I'm, if I'm ready at the computer or the day the tickets go live or whatever, or I could take a, you know, a trip down the wild rabbit hole and, you know, try to get into this Ultraman race. And I, I, I just couldn't get Ultraman out of my mind. I think because it scared me to death. Yeah. And there was something about that that was very alluring because that was for me that was what the journey was about. It wasn't about Kona or being like atop the age group ranks or anything like that. I needed to do something that really shook shook me up to kind of connect with myself. Dude, what did you say? Oh, re- so re- it wasn't re- about competing and all. Right, it was right. it was a different sensibility, I suppose. Not that I wasn't intrigued and interested in Ironman. Of course I, of course I was. And had there been the opportunity to go and do an Ironman in a, in a way that worked with the calendar and the kind of progression that I was making, right. then I would have done that. When I read your book, what did you say to, like, how did you just call up? Cause that's kind of like, you don't hear about that anymore. You, you don't hear like, well now like, you know, Ultraman gets a lot more press and there's more people that want to do it, even though that race has been around for, it's, what is it? 30 years yep. now. So yep. it's been around for 30 years. I mean, in 2000, so the first time I did Ultraman was 2008. So I would have been calling Jane in like very, it must've been like 10, 11 months before the race. Yeah. Your book said you had like eight, after, eight months to train. Right. But I mean, that was from when I got the green light that I was I was about, yeah, I must, I must've called Jane about nine months before the race. I know that it was before the window was open that they were accepting applications. 
And I called her simply because I wanted her to tell me that it wasn't going to happen. So I could like put it out of my mind and, and stop so you thinking did, about so it. Cause I was it. like, I read this article and I was obsessing about it and I couldn't stop thinking about it. And I was like, I'm just going to call her up and she'll, she'll like set me straight. And then I can go back to living my life right. and sleeping at night. And, uh, I just call, you know, like on active.com or wherever, where they have this stuff, there was a phone number or it was from the website, one of those two. And there was a phone number and I just called her and she picked up the phone just, and, uh, yeah, it was probably her house, you know, <laughs> I mean, you know, and, uh, and I just had, I just, it, I was just very honest with her. I was like, look, I read this article. I can't stop thinking about it. I kind of have no business calling you, but like, I'm really fascinated by Did what you tell this her that? is all about. And, you know, I'm totally green and I don't know anything, but you know, I'm really interested in this and I want you to tell me like what it, what it would take to be one of those 35 people to be selected. And if I'm a lunatic and, you know, please just tell me, you know, disabuse me of this notion that it's going to happen. Mm -hmm. And that was the moment where, you know, she could have, or pro probably possibly should have said, you know, why don't you go and do a couple <laughs> Ironmans or at least run a marathon or do a couple other things and call me in a year or, or two years. And then we can have a serious discussion about it. But that's not what she said. What Dude. she said was, you know, it's really cool that you're calling and, you know, it's really early on and Ultraman is much more than just finding, you know, the, the fastest athletes. It's about finding the right people that right. are suited for this journey. You yep. know, it's like, I kind of had this like, you know, soul surfer conversation with her about like where I was in my life and you know, why this was intriguing to me. And I think there was something about that that must have connected with her. Um, and, and, you know, allowed her to be, um, more open-minded about the possibility. So she didn't say yes, but she said, you know, why don't you call me in a couple months? We'll have another conversation. You know, it's like she didn't close the door. Right. You know what I mean? And right. so it was little like breadcrumbs of, you know, okay, well maybe I will move over in this direction a little bit. Well, do one of the things she said to me before I left the islands and Ultraman Hawaii, she's, she knows that we're friends and she's like, Hey, next time you come back here, make sure you bring Rich with you. Uh, yeah. I mean, I love her. She's a, she's a dear, dear person. Yep. And what she does with that race is really special. Yep. And it, I think it would be, it's interesting because I look back on it and even in the midst of doing it in 2008 and 2009, I'm looking around going, well, you know, we could like really improve this race if we got sponsor money and why don't they do this and why don't they do that? And we could, you know, like, why isn't there any media here covering this? It's such a fascinating story. Um, and I couldn't understand like why she was so, I understood why she was protective over it and its legacy. But I think at that time I was feeling that she was maybe a little overprotective. Right. Over it. But now in hindsight and looking back, I understand completely why she's made the decisions that she has. Yep. And, and I think that that has really preserved the integrity of that race and allowed it to maintain, uh, this sort of, um, you know, austerity and purity that you just don't find in other races. I mean, certainly you can find that in, in plenty of ultra races, but you're hard pressed to find something like that in the triathlon world. Totally, man. And it's because she said no to, you know, a lot of opportunities that have come down her way and yep. it's her baby and she gets to make the decisions and it's a monarchy and she's the queen. No kidding, I'm man. Fine with that. And me too. I am <laughs> too. Know? And I, I feel blessed to know her. I mean, she's, she can run out how she wants to if, if, if it keeps producing, you know. And, dude, look at the door. I mean, it's just cool that you what – a, what a doorway for you to walk through, man. Well, I mean, I, I don't – you know, I'm always conscious of – I'm not trying to, like, profit off the experience. 
I'm no, trying I'm not to saying sh- that. I'm trying to share the value of right. what it meant to me right. in the form of a story or a narrative that people might be able to emotionally connect yeah. with in kind of an, a metaphor kind of way. Um, but I'm always very cautious or, you know, kind of aware, conscious, I should say, of of making sure uh, about how I speak about that race because I have so much reverence for it. I agree. And, and for I, how it's conducted. Yep, I totally and for agree. for the other athletes and the and the crew members and the volunteers and the, the sort of, you know, the Ohana of the whole thing. Yep, yep, right on. So let's get to this part, okay? Man, because that's what everyone wants to hear about anyway. Yeah. So, so you know, you're you're doing your thing in Ironman, but you know, you're just you're not really distinguishing yourself. So, so where does this Epic Five kind of? I mean, that, that that's the next, yeah, thing, that, right? Yeah, the Epic Five was, um, yeah, that opportunity came, um, and I took it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, how did that opportunity come though? A lot of people would be like, "Well, how did that even enter into your mind?" Jason asked, you know, Lester got a hold of me, or we I talked, and um, I mean, how did that? How did you even? I, I, he was being coached by the same guy that was coaching me. Uh, I got that, you. That's so kind of where the connection. Yeah. That's kind of where the window opened. Um, and then, you know, over the course of a couple of conversations, um, and that's when I, I found another opportunity to work with, uh, Craig, the, that's when I worked with, that's how I met Lieto. Mm-hmm. I worked with Triple X Church, the online accountability program. Oh, right, right, right. Where you can, so explain what that is. So, I know what that is. Yeah, Triple uh, X Church is an online accountability program where... Um, it it's sounds a, dirty though. It does sound dirty. <laughs> it's, uh, it's pretty cool actually. Uh, and dude, it pisses off a lot of people. On the, on the conservative, like even on the conservative front, dude, it's like... like like I'm, I'm way more conservative. I'm just not pissed off about it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, but th- these guys catch a lot of crap, but the service that they do is it saves people's lives. N- no kidding. I remember meeting people that said, dude, that saved my life. It's an online accountability program where you put your, you pick three accountability partners. Like for example, my wife, my son and my daughter all know where I go on the internet. Mm-hmm. It's just a, it's just a fail. So they have access to your, they get a report history like, or yeah. whatever. And it's not because I'm some porn junkie, but I could be. Mm-hmm. Um, and I spent a lot of time on the computer. You spent a lot of time on the computer, dude, there are pitfalls out there and I've fallen in them before, whether willingly or unwillingly. And now it's become so, um, it's just, I see people and talk to people all the time struggling with porn addiction. And it's a big problem. I mean, I think, you know, all kinds of sort of internet related addictions are cropping up and this is new terrain. Yeah, exactly. Being. And I think, you know, it becomes a, a big problem. It can be devastating to people's lives. It, dude, it, it really can. It really does. It wrecks the home, man. And, and I, and I have guy, like, I remember when I was, when I was, you know, I had a Jeremy Frechette, my buddy from New York, the photographer that's been working with me, he flew out and took pictures of us. They, they came in from California. And I remember a couple of guys coming up to me going like, dude, why are you so against sex? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, what do you mean so against sex? He's like, well, you, you run it for, point. I'm like, dude, I am rah, rah for sex. I'm all for sex. It's, it's, sex, the way that's supposed to be designed with your wife is awesome. But with, with a daughter and a son, especially a son, dude, my, my Ian is asking me questions like freaking crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is just a great avenue and a great tool to talk to Ian about like, dude, man, you got to watch it online because it can suck you in, man. Right. Um, well, it's interesting to hear you explain it because, 
you know, when we first got acquainted, you know, through email or phone or whatever, and I was like, oh, who's this guy? And I'm checking you out. And I, and I noticed you were doing advocacy work for this group and not knowing, not having ever met you and not really having a frame of reference for what this organization mm-hmm. was. You know, I, I was like, oh, this is some kind of, you know, you're, you're the guy who's like out with a, with a, you know, a picket, right. a picket sign, right. you know, God shaming you. people, yeah. Who, yeah. you know, it's no, like, dude. because it's easy to, it's easy to draw that conclusion from the limited amount of information. You have to be very careful about how you yep. kind of frame the whole yep. thing. Yeah, you're right, dude. And they do, a, they do a pretty cool job. Like they go on, they, uh, Craig Gross and Ron Jeremy. They do college tours together uh-huh. and they have debates. They're very good friends uh, with Ron Jeremy. Yeah, it's really that cool. Ron Jeremy and Craig Gross. And like when I was over there at the after party, I had my hand around a guy that had a Hustler t-shirt on and we were both, you know, given the, the devil horn sound like rock yeah. on. And I just was trying to figure out a way to create dialogue with people. Um, Cause dude, when I was in the military, it was everywhere. Mm-hmm. I mean, porn was all over the place and you don't, you don't stop to consider it. And I have friends that struggle with it and I, I know marriages that have broken up with it. And it's, it's really just to start a discussion to say, Hey man, just be careful when you're on the computer. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, so yeah, so I did that and that's when, you know, going on to the queen K on the fifth day of the Epic five and you know, the Epic five, it's so cool to be able to talk to you about it. I could spend hours just talking to you about that, but I'm getting ready to take off. I'm the first out of the water on the last day and none other than Chris Lieto drives up next to me in his, on his bike and puts his hand on my shoulder and says, can I ride with you for the next 40 miles? And mm. you're I'll, leapfrogging way ahead in this narrative. Though. Sorry, dude. I'm, <laughs> I'm I want to make sure that I'm, but I do like, you know, footnoting this, this sort of full circle aspect. Sorry, of, dude. Sorry. Of, uh, of how Chris has played an important part in your life and how, you know, from the moment you see that magazine and that inspires you to go and do, Iron Man to, you know, him joining you for the final leg of uh, right, right. five. And then some of the things that you guys are doing together right now yeah. is, is awesome. You know, it's yeah. really cool and it's a beautiful thing. And I think it's, it's, you know, evidence and testimony that you're on the path that you're yep. meant to be on, yep. that, you know, these sort of synchronous events are aligning for you. Um, so that's really cool, but we're not going to skip through. All right, dude, I'll give you, I'll right give you back the steering five. wheel. I'll give you back yeah. the steering wheel. I'm Sorry. still trying to figure out how you got involved with it. So, Jason had a connection to your coach or the like yeah. athletes lounge or the Portland community. Yep, right? exactly. So that's how it all came yep, that was he, the genesis of it. And so the idea for people that are listening, or if you've read my book, like you read about how I did this thing, Epic five with right. Jason Lester. The idea was that we were going to do uh, five Ironmans on five Hawaiian islands and do it in five consecutive days. Correct. Island to island to island, starting on the Island of Kauai yep. and then going to Oahu then to Molokai, then to Maui, and then to the Big Island. Yep. And Jason, uh, this was Jason's brainchild. It's his idea. It was his concept, and he's the one who produced the entire thing and, and made the whole thing happen, which was no small feat. Correct. And he was kind enough to uh, invite me to attempt this with him in uh, 2010. And we did it together. It was kind of an experiment. It was a challenge. It was an adventure. It was not a race. Right. It was just the idea of, can we do this? And, and let's try to do this together. Right. And that's what I write about in my book. Um, ultimately, it took us a little bit longer than five days for reasons I explained in the book, a whole variety of uh, sort of yeah, that's, things that happen awesome when, when you're going to, you know, sort of uh, tackle, you know, an enormous 
challenge, there's going to be obstacles and unforeseen events and things like that. And that kind of threw our timeline off a little bit. Uh, we finished it in like six and a half days, right. or something like that. Um, so we, you know, we didn't, we didn't meet our five day goal, but we did complete the challenge. And as a result of that, Jason, <clears throat> had an interest in kind of developing this into an annual event right. where he would grow organically and slowly. So, so 2011 rolls around yep. and you're one of the guys that, yep. that, uh, becomes involved in this thing. I mean, what is the mental decision calculus that makes you say, I'm, I want to do this or uh, I want to do this? Dude, I, I think to be honest with you, Rich, I think, I think I was in the second he asked me. Um, I think that was the year he ran that, the one, the SB and he had met me in Portland for coffee and he had his SB there and he says, Hey, I got something coming up here. I think next year. Um, and that was before you guys did it. Mm-hmm. And so um, he already told you yeah. about what his, idea and he, I think was. he'd even mentioned that he's going to, that, that you guys are going to do it anyway. I knew it was happening from him before you guys did it. Uh-huh. And then after you guys did it, we touched base again and he's like, Hey, I got, f- I'm doing it with five guys. Do you want in? Um, and I, I said, yeah. Um, so was that, but that had to be a family decision, right? I mean, yeah, I, 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 I told her, I told Rhonda, I was like, I played the limp dog, but I was totally in man. Um, I told Rhonda, um, I was like, Hey babe, I want to do this. And she's like, Oh, I mean, cause Rhonda is as supportive as she is, but she's like, man, babe, just freaking chill. But, um, right. But yeah, it was, it was full on support. Um, the crappy thing about that was she couldn't come with me. Mm-hmm. That was something that I struggled with for a little bit. Um, cause I knew it was going to be lonely. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's like loneliness and dog years when your wife's not there and you're in pain. Um, so once you decide that you're going to do this thing, how does that change your physical preparation? Like how did you tweak your training to adapt your body and your, your mind yeah. and emotions and yeah. all of that to, uh, get ready to endure this thing? Well, I coached myself for number one. Oh, you did? Yeah. Wow. Um, that's a bold move. Yeah. And I, well, because I knew, I just, I think I'd been reading, I, I, I was reading stuff that you were doing. How did I, I, I remember reading and I, I talked to Jason a couple of times, but I just kind of was at that point now where, you know, I'd read a lot of Gordo stuff and a lot of Joel stuff and, and Gordo Byrne yeah. is a legendary yeah. endurance coach. I, I emailed him and Jones talked to him Byrne. a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, he and it won Ultraman yep, before. Yep. Alan Cousins I talked with. Uh-huh. Um, I was picking the brains of athletes and people that were way better than me. Um, and I just trained a lot of hours at a reasonably slower pace. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I threw in interval work and I threw in, but I, I mean like I would watch the, I, I would spend six hours, seven hours on the trainer. Mm-hmm. Um, I would run for, you know, six hours. I would do, I just, I, I just coming from Ironman training to suddenly getting to a place where you're running for six hours. I mean, that's a big, it leap. was a build. Yeah. I didn't just, I didn't just like flip the switch and the next day go. I mean, I, I progressed because common sense dictates, okay, if I'm in Ironman shape, I realize that it's more of a recovery game than anything. Mm-hmm. You know, like, like, uh, those that recover the best race, the best in Ultraman that is anyway. Um, I didn't know it by then, but 
And at the time too, this is when I started to entertain the thought of Ultraman, but I just didn't think I was good enough or fast. I seriously didn't, you right. know, we had a conversation about that after, after Epic five, but let's stick to this. Part yeah. Right yeah. Now. Actually. Yeah. You, you, you played a key role in that, but nonetheless, I was thinking about Ultraman at that time. And then when this came up, I'm like, Oh, cool. If I do this, there's a good chance I could maybe use it as a, as a, Right. Uh, that's a, that's a way into Ultraman. Yeah. Cause, mm-hmm. cause, uh, because uh, people don't, for, for listeners out there, you can't just sign up for some of these ultra races, right? You have to be vetted. You have to be, um, somebody who can prove that you're capable of, of covering the distance and you're not going to die. And some of these races, it's, they're like filling out college applications. Correct. You need letters of recommendation yep. and you have to be able to establish that within the last 18 months, you've done a certain number of races of certain distances, et cetera, et cetera. And now Ultraman is like that. Like, you have to have done another Ultraman or at least, I, I don't know exactly what the rule is, but I think you, have, they you want can't to, just go to Ultraman Hawaii anymore. No, 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 no. Right. It's very, yeah, I was, uh, well, dude, I remember talking to you. I'm like, dude, I don't know if I'm going to get in. And, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, I, uh, I got in. Um, so, but, but sticking to Epic five yep. now. So, so, uh, how long did you, how, I mean, how long did you prepare? How many months or was uh, this like a year? Yeah. Re, you know, re, launching up to this 10 months, I think. Uh-huh. Um, and I just remember in my training, you're talking about how recovery becomes more important for me. Yeah. Recovery, but also it's, it, it had so much less to do with the intensity of the workouts than it had to do with being persistently in motion and, and acclimating to being fatigued and training through fatigue. Oh, definitely. You know, sort of experimenting with sleep deprivation. Like I'm going to get up and I'm going to run when I haven't slept at all because I'm going to have to be able to know what that feels. I would stay up all at work. I would take the advantage of not having like not sleeping at work, staying up all night at my job. And I would use the next day, I would get into the water and then I would Mm -hmm. go for a ride and I I would literally do that very thing. Mm -hmm. And the intensity that, that I trained for that was very low. Yep. It was very casual, but I was kind of always moving. I was like always riding my bike or right. You know, it's like this perpetual motion machine where your body just gets acclimated to the idea that it is constantly in motion. Were you full on vegan then? Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I was vegan. Um, I was vegan at the first Ultraman. In that's right. That's, yeah, that's so, what your yeah, books. Yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah. That's right. Um, yeah, because the, the, the How'd you fuel for that? No, you talked about that in the book. Yeah. I mean, you know, I've, that's been an ongoing experimentation, right? but you know, trying to eat real foods as much as possible. Exactly. And when you're, when you're training at that lower intensity, you can it's, digest it's that much stuff easier to digest of course. food. So it's not about, you don't, you actually don't want to be spiking your blood sugar, Correct. With crazy amounts of sugar. Yeah, that's really not going working. to be, you're, you're trying to train your body to burn fat for fuel. You're trying to be extremely, uh, economic and efficient in all of your actions and you're moving at a pace in which you're able to digest food to a certain extent, right? Regular food. Yep. I mean, is that how, yeah, it it would be a little bit more of a struggle when, when gravity takes a hold and you get off the bike and start running. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was, that was the biggest on the bike. Of course. Um, but yeah, so, all right. So same, same. So it's you, uh, it's Juan Creveri. It is, uh, Juan, Juan, Juan did yep, that yep. year. Joseph. Right? And Joseph Ajum from, yep. from Spain. Mm-hmm. And, and Flarty. Guys? Mike Flarty. Mike Flarty, right. Of and course. then Lester. And Lester. Yeah. Okay. 
So that's a good group. Yeah. And uh, you show up in Kauai like what, like a week ahead of time? Yeah. I was like, what's going on? Yeah, that's exactly what I did. And my wife had written. I mean, are you scared or are you excited? Like what is going on in your mind? Yeah, I was scared and excited. Um, and I'd never been to Hawaii before, dude. Oh, wow. Um, and I'd been seeing the videos of you. Um, on, on right. So Jason and I had done it. So you knew it could be done. And, and, and we had had all these other pitfalls and, and the like. I mean, in certain respects, you know, the, the journey that Jason and I took um, was kind of a proving ground for, for you guys. It was so awesome, that, dude. You that, get, that it was, barrier it was, had been exploded. So you guys knew you could do it. And you guys could just go out and, and, and kill it. And you get it done in five days. Yeah, I I don't know. I, I wouldn't necessarily say we killed it. Well, you you accomplished the feat. Yeah, yeah. it was. Uh, man, dude, it. I don't. I don't even know how to unravel this ball. Um, it was. We got to hit the highlights because we could talk for. I could talk to you for nine hours. These, straight these are the highlights for me. Running. But I want to hear about like. I want to hear. Yeah, I want to hear about the high highs and I want to hear about the, okay. the low lows. Right on. Uh, the high part of it was running with uh, Ian Adamson for me mm-hmm. on Molokai, the, the marathon. runner, yep. sort of, uh, he's affiliated with Newton yep. running yep. shoes, right? Yep. Yeah, he is. He holds a couple of world records, a couple of medals. Um, he he kind of came on to be kind of crew help. and Yeah, he was, well, he and his wife, Leah Garcia, who works PBR, travels the United States doing the the pro, the pro rodeo. Oh, right. The bull ride. Yeah. On TV, uh-huh. they were doing the documentary for outside television. That well, was, that's right. Outside did a documentary. They, they, so they year, were the, right? like the, um, the media crew. I got you. There were cameras all over the place. I mean, when Jason and I did it, I remember when we started in Kauai, it was just Rebecca, who's our friend and she was the crew chief and took care of and everything. She's awesome. She's amazing. And hi Rebecca. Cause I know you listen to the, hi, we, 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 we were, we were, we, we, were we were loving you on you <laughs> about an hour ago. And Julie says hi. Um, but I remember Jason and I just standing in front of her condo in Princeville and it was like four o'clock in the morning or whatever. And it's like, all right, let's start running. Let's, let's go. go. Started, you know, there was zero, there was nobody dating. Man, dude. I think, I think Rebecca trip. snapped a, a picture on a little Instamatic and that was about it. It's awesome, man. So it was cool that you guys had, you know, a full film crew. Yeah, it was. Guys around. Yeah, it brought in a, a whole different dynamic, but I think, I think running with Ian was, it was a really big highlight for me. Um, uh, I got an interview. Oh, another big highlight for me was on day four, I was walking through the airport. I had my glasses on because I, I had been crying on the plane, getting ready to land. And four guys from my fire department were standing there with a Hillsborough fire flag oh, wow. and they crewed me for that day. Oh, I think I remember hearing about that. It was that's pretty cool. So they surprised you. They flew out to get yep, you. Wow, that's yep, amazing. That was really, really cool. Well, wait of, a minute. You were crying on that. On a, what were you, you were crying out of like fatigue? Dude, or? I was just, I was just crying, oh. man. <laughs> just, this is ridiculous. I'm getting disappointed because I haven't made you cry yet. Dude, so I, uh, out of this podcast. And, I, but now uh, with all the pressure, you're probably not going to. Yeah. Well, but anyway, there's still time. Um, I, uh, yeah, I, I grabbed on my buddy, my buddy, uh, uh, Joe Lennox, who's one of the closest, one of my closest friends. He, he was there with Ted and, and Matt Dobbin and, and Larry Yakimi. They're all close friends of mine. Uh, and they've played a significant role in my life. Even to this day, like Lennox, Joe crewed me for Ultraman and mm-hmm. I went and spent time with Ted in Kenya, but nonetheless, they were there on day four and, um, Joseph Arjun was, uh, Juan Caravi came up to me and said, Joseph Arjun told me that you have your friends here, so you are going to fly today. Uh, <laughs> like, yeah, that's true. It right? was just a shot in the arm that I needed. So right. day four was not as difficult 
it was the hardest day, but it wasn't as hard as I anticipated it was going to be because I had that momentum. You of had those your boys. Guys. Yeah, you. it was pretty cool. Day four was horrible for me. It was. It, it was the hardest day had for to me. Carry me out of the car after that day. <laughs> carry me to the hotel. You know, it was. It was. It was I was in bad, bad shape, man. Dude, is that the day that he was feeding you? <laughs> yeah, probably. Well, I mean, we we had we had been dealing with such ridiculous sleep deprivation and, and it, you guys me, had mechanical issues. We had a, yeah. So like on the second day in Oahu, we had all these bike problems that you can read about in detail in my book, but essentially we didn't even get going on our bikes on the second day in Oahu until like 12, 1230 yeah. in the afternoon or something like that. So we already had like blown hours and hours and hours trying to solve these stupid problems. And so our timeline got all messed up. So that just threw the whole kind of momentum and flow. Yeah, mentally that wears thing. you down too. And so by the time we got to day four, I was, just, I was cooked, man. Yeah. And just getting through that day was the hardest thing. Yeah. And it's pain. I remember just saddle sores, not being able to sit down on my seat. I know it, dude. And I I can remember just like riding along with this beautiful coastline, this beautiful beach to my right and looking at it and going, I don't care, man. I just, I want to lie my bike down on the pavement and I could fall asleep in like five seconds. I know. know? I know, dude. One of the funniest parts of your books when when you guys were talking about like, dude, just don't talk to me. Just shut, just shut up. Cause, cause just with, with me, when I start to get really fatigued like that, like I can't handle external stimuli and I get (laughs) really grouchy, man. You know, I get really, and I talk about that in the book too. Like I'm not proud of that, you know, but I, I I couldn't handle like human interaction. Like I just was, I was losing my shit. Isn't it weird, dude, how when you get like, you just get winnowed down to the core, like everything is removed except the like breathing pretty much breathing and mm-hmm. everything else is like, like, well, you can't, um, I mean, you were saying at the beginning of the podcast, like you, you know, uh, you know, you lie to yourself more than, you know, like you're always catching yourself lying to yourself. But when you're, when you're in that state, there's something <laughs> extremely pure about that. Like you're just being burned in the flame. Exactly. You know? There is no, li- no lie can persist because you are, just laid bare, you know, Dude, exactly it's refining. You, you just are. get refined. And there's man. no mask and there's, yeah. I mean, you are like at your rawest self in that regard. And I think that's something like unconsciously, I think that I was always seeking and that's what drew me to the ultra world to begin with is I wanted to have that experience of, you know, what it would be like to absolutely go all the way up against myself to the wall, to that breaking point and see what was there, you know? And I think I learned a lot about myself through, through doing yeah. that. You, know, you don't have a choice. Um, no, you, you because you're yeah. the student and the teacher at the same time. Yeah, for sure. Um, so yeah, so Maui was rough. I mean, we ended up, you know, I, we finished the bike and it was, you know, late at night. We, I mean, I just could not believe <laughs> after I finished that bike that I was going to be running a marathon. There was just no way yeah. on earth. And to this day, looking back on that, um, you know, it's, I'm still baffled at how I actually got off the bumper of that car and got through that that evening. And, you know, it's a, it's a spiritual odyssey, dude. You it's- know what I mean? And there is no, you can't really put words to, what it was like to be in the midst of that experience. So, I mean, I want to know, like, you know, what was that for you? I was hallucinating and imagine Demi Moore was chasing me. <laughs> oh, God. I, I, I'm not kidding you. What does that say about you, Demi Moore? <laughs> Dude, 
seriously. I, Where were you when that was happening? That was on day five. I started uh-huh. to hallucinate. The, the beginning of the swim, I was out front because day five, I'm like, day five was the only day I'm like, I'm freaking gone. I, I just want to push it. That's when I met Chris, mm-hmm. like I said earlier, jumped the gun there. Um, but the end of day four, I remember I was hallucinating. I thought I saw snow leopards coming out of the, just like. Onto the queen K. Yeah. Just, wow. And then uh, the beginning of the swim, I saw a fin in front of me. And then another fan, and I'm like, yeah, this is it. Now here I go. I'm just going to roll over and get eaten like a seal. And it was a dolphins, but I thought it was a right. shark. I just, you just, your mind is, that's why like talking to you, you get it. I don't have to explain anything and you understand, but to other people that you have to explain it to, they'll never get it. It's just kind of, well, try Let's try. You okay. Know? I mean, I think people are really interested in this. I mean, they're interested in like why you would want to do this to begin with. And they're interested in, you know, what that experience felt like and, and ultimately what you took away from it. I think, I think, um, without, without like giving too many canned answers, obviously there's always that desire to see how far I can go before I crack. I mean, that's just an essence and a core element of most people that do this type of sport. Mm-hmm. At least the, you know, the select few that feel like they want to find out how far the limit is. So that had definitely something to do with it. Number two, um, it's cool. It's a cool event to be a part of. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's that, there's that selfish part of me that's like, man, this would be freaking awesome. Um, three. Yeah, it's much more like the amazing race than it is like, qualifying for Kona. Exactly. And I think, um, dude, there's, there's so many metaphors for my walk with Christ and racing. And I think I found that with many athletes that, that say that that's, you know, the source of many Christian athletes that I feel like, especially Chris Lieto talking on that queen K when we were talking, he goes, dude, why are you doing this? Mm-hmm. He's like, you look relatively fresh, man. Um, and Chris was killing me. He was freaking hammering. Mm-hmm. And I was trying my hardest to not look like... Well, you're on the bike. I mean, you dude, know, he looked, nobody can keep up with that. And then the he kind of scooted around me. He's like, let me, let me cut wind for you right here. And I'm like, dude, Chris Lieto is breaking wind for me. <laughs> like, he's in front of me, like, right now, breaking the yaw. Um, but I had some real personal moments with myself. Um, like... I resonate. I remember thinking to myself too, like I could just lay down, I could just lay down right here. And it was in the middle of the day and not even worry about the cement searing my body and just mm-hmm. fall asleep. Mm-hmm. Um, and in all the letters that Rhonda wrote to me, she wrote me a letter every day and I had to open it before the race. Um, she struggled a lot. Like, why are you doing this? Um, and I think ultimately is just because I just want to, I just want to go somewhere that nobody else has gone. Um, and it doesn't even have anything to do with triple X church or, um, like I just want to go and be somewhere where I know I can't screw anything up. And a lot of times for me in the midst of the most uncomfortable parts of the race, I wish I could cash in on the feeling of how serene they are after the race is done. Like there are so many times where I'm like, why did I waste that 20 minutes? Even when I was throwing up, why did I waste that? Why did I not just kind of like totally revel in the idea of nobody else is experiencing this at this very moment? Um, and, uh, does that make sense, dude? Is that, 
I know how, I know how like artsy that sounds, but, um, to push yourself to the limit and then go farther is it's almost, it's just almost hard to describe. That's it. That's our show. Don't forget part two with Christian is coming up on Thursday, a couple days, depending upon when you're listening to this. So again, that means essentially two episodes this week and RRP twofer. Uh, so that's good stuff. Anyway, before we close it out, a couple announcements again, my new course with mind, body green is called the art of living with purpose. Check it out. Mindbodygreen.com. It's full of all kinds of awesome Secondly, we have an iOS app for the iPhone and the iPad. That's coming soon. It's in development. We're getting close, super close. I'm really excited about that as well. We're almost there. It's going to be a way for you to access the entire catalog of the podcast. As you know, iTunes only goes back to the most uh, recent 50 episodes. This is going to allow you to go all the way back to number one, and the app is going to be free. Super cool. More on that as we progress. That's it. Until Thursday. Uh, be good, everybody. And if you want to support the show, you know how to do it. Use the Amazon banner ad at richroll.com. Doesn't cost you any extra on your Amazon purchases, like buying the paperback copy of Finding Ultra. Uh, but Amazon kicks out some loose commission change. That allows us to keep the lights on. It allows us to support Tyler, who produces the show. Thank you, Tyler, and all that good stuff. You can also donate to the show. You can do it with Bitcoin now. We added that functionality, which is pretty cool. You can do that on a one-time basis, weekly basis, monthly basis, any amount of your choice. Thank you so much for doing that. The show will always be free. This is not an obligation, but we thank you guys so much for supporting us by going the extra mile and doing that. It means a lot. Other ways you can support, you can leave a review on iTunes. We love that. One of my favorite ways of supporting the show Put up an Instagram of you listening to the show while you're out exercising or at work or commuting or whatever it is you're doing. I love seeing people enjoying the show in their native environment. Uh, so keep that up, you guys. I dig it. Uh, go to richroll.com for all your plant power needs, your provisions, T-shirts, trucker hats. We got beanies. We got nutritional supplements. We've got the meditation program. We've got the Jai C digital download, downloadable cookbook, all that stuff. You know about that. Anyway, I'm out of here. I'll check back in with you in a few days from Beirut. They say it's the Paris of the Middle East. So I'm anxious to, uh, to see if that's actually true. I think it might be. So full report coming your way. Until then, live wide, love deep, and I'll catch you on the flip side. Peace. Plants. Yeah.